Welcome to Theologic. I'm Sean Muschin. I'm Zach Pecky. Zach Deacon. Today we're going to be talking with Pastor Brian Jensen, who's been with us before. Backed by popular demand. Mm, wow. Yes, sir. <laughs> and we'll be talking today about how Jesus is the greater Moses. Yeah. We'll be looking to see how the Gospel of John navigates us to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise made that a prophet like Moses, yet greater, would come. And to get us going on that, I want to read a lyric that was written by Keith Getty and Matt Boswell some years ago. Christ, the true and better Moses, called to lead a people home, standing bold to earthly powers, God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven, see the waters part in two, see the veil is torn forever, cleansed with blood we pass now through. And again, that's a song, Christ the True and Better. And so I think that really captures in a nutshell what we'll be looking at today. Yeah. And I'm very excited uh, to be discussing this. Pretty much what took place to birth this episode was really minutes after our first interview with Brian Jensen, where we were just sitting around the table after we're talking. And I don't remember how it got started, but Pastor Brian just started walking through the narrative of the Gospel of John and showing how in each step of the way, Jesus is shown to be this promised prophet, this one greater than Moses. And it was a wonderful moment of just receiving this teaching, just listening. And so once we got done hearing Pastor Brian, we we're like, we should have had the record button going yeah. this entire time. So here about six months later, we are getting it done. And yeah. so I want to turn it over to Pastor Brian. And as he uh, is here with us, he has something to share as well regarding some things coming up this summer. Yeah, first I'd like to know who that one person was that was the popular demand that asked me to come back. <laughs> um, um, oh, I see him across the table. The, the, the ratings speak for themselves. There yeah, you yeah. go. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah, I asked for the opportunity to give a slight advertisement. Um, every summer, for the last several years, maybe 10 years, I've been giving seminars in the church on weeknights. I know it's the summer and nobody's thinking about anything, but I like to think, and I think there are some people who like to think. So Amen. I give um Things that I've been reading about or thinking about that haven't worked into sermons or Sunday school classes. And so um, I, I have three scheduled, uh, two for June and then one for the middle of July. Uh, the first one is Responding to the Social Imaginary. Um, Carl Truman wrote a couple of really helpful books um, helping us to understand the cultural situation. And I want to talk through a little bit of some of the concepts that he has and then how is the church to uh, respond to uh, challenges that are produced by this uh, social imaginary where people uh, make decisions and choices in a non-deliberative uh, way? Uh, the second one then is Restoring Biblical Marriage, and that comes out of reading by another book that was um, kind of recommended by the uh, podcast that Carl Truman is on. Ask the question, you know, um, the, the the book was written slightly before the Obergefell decision mm -hmm. uh, codifying gay marriage in our mm -hmm. land, and it, it asked the question of where, how did this start? You know, where did where did marriage stop being something between one man and one woman for the purpose of creating a family? And what struck me as I was reading through this book is that there are probably a lot of heterosexual Christian marriages that are a whole lot more like gay marriages mm -hmm. than they are like wow. biblical marriages. So that's another okay. thing that we want to talk about. That'll be in June 27th. And then the last one is um, this matter of the new apostolic reformation. People are suggesting that there are new apostles today and prophecies all over the place and miracles happening. 
And I, I want to ask some serious questions. I don't really have a big diatribe to talk about, but I really want to ask some serious mm-hmm. questions about um, these kinds of things. So that'll be in the middle of July, July 11th. So that's my big commercial. All right. So that's going to be over at your church then, over yep. at the Hospers PCA, Hospers Presbyterian Church of America. So. With refreshments. With refreshments. Ah, okay. Always, always with refreshments. <laughs> yeah. Usually ice cream sandwiches. Not that I would know. <laughs> And did you, did you say the time? What, what time? Seven seven o'clock goes to about eight thirty. Q and A Q&A time. So okay, take a little break and then have a question and answer time as well. I love Q and A's. Yeah, oh. be good. So, uh, Pastor Brian, I really just essentially want to turn it over to you and um, show us uh, what John's intent is in portraying Jesus in this particular fashion, so as to highlight um, highlight who Jesus is and what he was intended to fulfill. Sure. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 uh, says, um, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. That clues us in that John has been selective. There were a lot of miracles that he could have uh, listed, but he chose these miracles, seven miracles, which is a very symbolic number for John, especially in the book of Revelation, but also in the Gospel of John. And then he gives us the purpose. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So they're written to give the assurance or the ground that we could have a solid reason to believe that Jesus is the Christ which, as you know, is a Jewish concept that he is the Messiah. He is the one that God sent into the world to be the champion, the one who was the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, and the one who would be the one to rescue his people. And so I, I thought about the different signs, and arguably there are seven signs. The, the last one is kind of conflated between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, so it's kind of a, a double sign. Um, and I thought, why would these signs, why not other signs? Yeah. You know, why not um, healing lepers or casting out demons? Why these seven signs? And why would this demonstrate beyond the shadow of any doubt that Jesus is the Messiah? Just for our listeners' sake, to, just a few of the signs that John brings out, beginning in chapter 2, is where he turns water uh, into wine. Uh, the second one is found in John 4, right at the end, where he heals the nobleman's son. And uh, John is making a big emphasis, as Pastor Brian's going to say, on uh, these specific signs as a, as a proof that uh, Jesus is the Christ. So, Yeah, that's an excellent point. And he does enumerate the first two signs, yeah. and then he just goes on to describe the other five without enumerating them because he thinks that we know how to count. <laughs> He's giving yeah. us a, a, a signal that we should be counting these up, these seven signs. And so, I, you know, I began to ponder why, and it's really great to ask questions. You know, there's that uh, movie, uh, is it iRobot? I don't know if you ever saw that. I've heard it. Yeah, it's got Will, Will Smith uh, in it. Yeah, you guys are all too young. These are old movies. Whoa, so. No, no, no. I've seen that. I've seen that. And anyhow, the, one. one of the main characters uh, who has already died, uh, but his hologram uh, tells uh, Will Smith, the Will Smith character, that he has to ask the right questions. And when he asks the right question, bingo, mm-hmm. everything comes together. So why? Why these seven signs? 
I began to think uh, about the fact that early on, I think it's in chapter three or four, the people are asking, wondering, could this be the prophet? Could Jesus be the prophet? What prophet? Well, the prophet that was foretold in Deuteronomy 18 and again in Deuteronomy 34, uh, the prophet who would be like Moses and who would be known for all of his great signs. And that suddenly, you know, clicked something in my head. And I thought about the first sign, which uh, Zach mentioned was turning water into wine in John chapter 2. And the only other character in the Bible who ever did anything with water, changing it from one thing to another, was Moses. And in fact, it was the first sign of Moses. And the first sign of Jesus was changing water. I also noticed that Moses changed water to blood, which was a sign of death. And it created great hardship for the people of Egypt because they had no water to drink. It's, right. it's possible that some people actually died of thirst. But Jesus changed water to wine. And I remember that statement in uh, of the Apostle Paul uh, pointing out that Moses was a ministry of death, mm-hmm. but Second Jesus is a ministry of life. Second Corinthians 3. Yeah. Okay, great. Second Corinthians 3. Yeah. So then I began to think about the other signs of Jesus. So the second sign was the healing of a royal son. And it's very curious uh, how he's described. He's not a king, but the word basileon is used there, which is a royal word. And so somehow he's a leader. He's a royal guy, and his son is sick, and Jesus heals him. And I thought, well, did you know, was there anything about a son in, in you know, the healing and no, actually, Moses killed the royal son. He mm-hmm. killed Pharaoh's son, and that's the second sign. And so then I, I looked at the third sign, healing the man who was paralyzed for 38 years. Okay, when did Moses do anything at all with someone paralyzed 38 years? And sorry, I kind of ran out, mm-hmm. except for a very curious fact that the number 38 only appears in Scripture twice. Once in describing this man who was paralyzed for 38 years, and 38 is actually the time post-Sinai, the number of years that Israel spent in the wilderness going nowhere. And here's a man who's been paralyzed going nowhere for 38 years, And he is a redo of Israel going nowhere for 38 years. Uh, Notice that um, uh, it it brought death to the sinful generation, but Jesus brought healing and restoration to this man. Well, then I thought about, you know, the fourth sign, bread in the wilderness. Well, that's a gimme. That's so easy because one of the great signs of Moses was that he brought manna in the wilderness and the bread of uh, bread of life. But, you know, for Moses, it was only physical bread. Those who ate that bread still died, but the Jesus was giving the bread of eternal life. And so those who came to him uh, would, uh, would live forever. And then crossing the stormy sea, the fifth sign in John's gospel, when did, when did Israel cross any sea? Oh, yes, they crossed the Red Sea, didn't mm-hmm. they? And it just all came together. Uh, Moses uh, rescued the people, but they were lost because they never, none of them, none of that generation made it to the promised land. Jesus rescued his disciples 
they got across the sea safely, miraculously, and they were saved. Now, the sixth sign is one very interesting, and it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's the healing of the man born blind. And someone who would be born blind and live all of their life in that culture in as a beggar, basically, because they could do nothing else, would really be the dregs of society. And as you read the account, the Pharisees treat him like uh, someone who just isn't worth anything. But he comes up with some really remarkable questions and uh, makes them look very foolish. Now, what connection did that have with anything that Moses did? Did Moses heal anybody who was blind? And the answer is no. But the connection comes in something that the formerly blind man said. He said that never from the beginning of time has have we ever heard of someone who was healed from being born blind. So what does that indicate? It indicates that Jesus has surpassed now Moses. Hmm. Jesus has redone all of the great signs of Moses, crossing the Red Sea, providing man in the wilderness, turning water, not into blood, but into wine, not killing the royal son, but actually saving the royal son. And Jesus has gone way beyond anything that Moses has ever done. And then the last one, of course, was raising Lazarus in John chapter 11. Another great story, wonderful story. And um, uh, interestingly, um, Moses himself was barred from seeing God's glory. He asked to see God's glory. He did not, and his congregation all died in the wilderness. But Jesus has manifested God's glory because he tells his disciples in leading up to the raising of Lazarus from the dead that if, or actually telling, I think it was Mar Martha or Mary, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And he shows the glory of God in the resurrection of Lazarus. And his congregation didn't die in the wilderness, but we are on our way to the promised land and we will live forever. So that's the connection that uh, made, and it seemed to all make sense. And it portrays, really, Jesus as the greater prophet, the one who was going to come, talked mm -hmm. about in Deuteronomy 18, and again re reaffirmed in Deuteronomy 34, because the whoever edited the end of Deuteronomy 34, because Moses is already dead, of course, right, right. Uh, said, you know, you know, we've been looking, we haven't seen him, hasn't come yet, no one mm -hmm. has done the great signs, and it kind of leads right to the Gospels and Jesus performing these great signs. Yeah, I was even noticed. I was thinking as you were talking about the the man who was blind and then healed, as you were um, talking about his statement that since the beginning of time, no one has done mm -hmm. such things. And I I was thinking that prior to that, I thought Moses had come up in the narrative. And in fact, yeah, there in verse twenty eight of chapter nine, the Pharisees reviled him, the, mm -hmm. the blind man, or the man who was blind anyway, and they say to him. You are you are his disciple, Jesus' disciple, mm -hmm. but we are disciples of Moses. Mm -hmm. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opens my eyes. Mm -hmm. And so right, right before that, Moses is brought in explicitly into the narrative. And to, to anybody who might be looking at this and saying, well, you're just kind of reading into perhaps the text of scripture in a certain way. I think there's some explicit statements in John, such as what Sean is bringing out. 
And that's in chapter 1, uh, in the prologue to the entire Gospel of John, where he says, the law came through Moses, mm -hmm. but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And with the law, as, as uh, Pastor Brian brought out from 2 Corinthians 3, that the law produces death. That's what it was designed to do. And Paul mm -hmm. brings that out in, in Romans 7. But Christ comes and he brings life. He is the true and better Moses. Would part of maybe the dynamic of why this might seem like it's out of left field is because mm -hmm. we're 2,000 years removed from it? Do you think that a Jew of Jesus' day would have had such a hard time connecting the dots as we might in our day and time? I honestly think not. Now, I, I need to walk this back just a little bit okay. because I, I was warned in seminary that if you have a thought that no one's ever thought before, <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. probably wrong. Mm -hmm. I cannot find this anywhere. So I, I really wonder if someone with the capacities, limited capacities that I have, could actually come up with something like this. But it just makes sense to me. And in answer to your question, you know, Moses – was the um, George Washington of Israel. Yeah. Everybody knew everything there was about Moses. And uh, everything that they believed and everything they practiced came from Moses and the law of Moses. He was the one who rescued them from Egypt. And so uh, he was the founder of their nation. So when they were looking for the Messiah, they were also looking for the prophet who would be like Moses. So I don't think they would have missed this. And yeah. I think John made this explicit. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was interesting as well. The first sign that you mentioned with the wine and how uh, Moses turns water to blood, right. resulting in death. Yeah, Jesus turns water into wine and more of this life-giving picture. But yet, conceptually, wine and blood are not like foreign ideas from each other no. in scripture right. within scripture they're very very closely tied tied together so oh. even in that there's a continuity dynamic mm -hmm. uh, to what has been done but again one unto death and one yeah. unto life thinking of the lord's table for example exactly. right sure. you, this is my blood right mm -hmm. so what about your idea are you worried about somebody else not really thinking of before because I, I mean certainly like people have made connections between christ and moses before Right. I mean, um, yeah, I'm sure, and and that's a that's a really good point, and and um, it's pretty common, I think, to see. Well, I mean, if Jesus is our great fulfillment of the three offices of the Old Testament—prophet, priest, and king—Moses mm -hmm. uh, is clearly the type mm -hmm. of the great prophet, and Jesus is the greater prophet because he is the one who is not only speaking the word of God; he is the word of God. Yeah. No one; he's beyond compare. So why am I worried about it's the combination of these things. Sure. In fact, one of my favorite Bible commentators, Leon Morris, in his commentary on John, which is highly recommended, mm. said um, this idea of comparing the 38 years of the paralyzed man with the 38 years of Israel in the wilderness. He gives a huge two thumbs down on that. So okay. <laughs> that's what makes me question this. And if that were the only one that I was leaning on, it's just that the other five and then the sixth and the seventh sure seem to make a lot of sense. But, yeah. I was still say I want to reiterate out of appreciation of what you said, though, that the number only comes up twice. I, and I can't it's find in, it. It's in connection to these two men who are compared 
to each other, or I say compared to each other, but they are at least contrasted, Moses and, and Jesus. Then, then Israel, and, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, but Mo, yes, yes, right. Moses mm-hmm. kind of be in the mix of it, that in the leadership right. dynamic. Sure. Yes, definitely. And then you've got the dynamic of the explicit promise from Deuteronomy 18 that there is coming a prophet greater than Moses. Because who was it? Who, I mean, if it's not if it's not Jesus, then then who else is it? I don't even think you call it arbitrary because Sinai is a very distinct point mm-hmm. in the journey. And so for there to be 38 years from the point they leave Sinai to the point they end up in the promised land, it's not, it's not dicing up numbers. The narrative is very clear mm-hmm. that when it they is. get from the time they leave Egypt to the time they get to Sinai, that's a unique portion. And then their journey from Sinai. So. Would it be good to read the gospel of John and Deuteronomy in tandem? As I am about to start John, should I also be thinking about reading through Deuteronomy maybe? Yeah, when you read John, you know, read it as John would write it to basically anybody to try to convince them that Jesus is the Christ. And so then ask, well, why would this be convincing and to whom this would be convincing? There's, there's some pretty strong consensus that John is actually writing to a, a more of a Greek audience than a, a Hebrew or Jewish audience. If the point he's trying to make is that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, you wonder, well, how would that speak to the Greeks? But isn't that something too that in um, more recent years, more more scholars have come to see John's gospel not so strictly as being directed to the Greek, but being more of a balance. That I think it might be been something of a shift in more recent years to seeing that there is a Jewish flavor to to John's gospel. That's very possible. Sure. Yeah. As we're as we're doing what Zach's just talking about, our devotion, just reading mm-hmm. through, how does this enrich our time in the Word? Yeah, it it helps us, I think, to see the Christ centeredness of the whole Bible. So when we're reading through the Old Testament, um, we can find examples to follow. You know, David did this; it was good. Do this. David did that; it was bad. Don't do that. Uh, and that's okay. Um, but that won't lead us to a richer and fuller sense of what the Bible's purpose is in presenting Christ to us. And it won't really show us the beauty and the sweetness and the glory of Christ himself. You know, when you think about it, uh, God's son coming into the world was so momentous that it took several thousand years to get us ready for it. And that's the writings of the Old Testament. And that's why, you know, when you read the Old Testament, uh, as as uh, the deacon was saying, mm-hmm. you know, we need to read the Old Testament and the New Testament in tandem. I agree wholeheartedly uh, so that we can see the fulfillment and the, the you know, the, the larger words or the more scholarly words are typology. Mm-hmm. So the type and then the anti-type and the, the fulfillment of the type. And we should really talk about that subject as well, because I think that helps us to see Christ a little more clearly in the Old Testament and to see his greatness and glory as it's revealed in the New Testament. And typology would be the idea of a pattern, isn't that? Is kind of the, maybe something of a working definition of typology is that there's a pattern in Scripture, whether it's found in the sacrificial system mm-hmm. or it's found in the prophet like Moses or the king like David, or even the one that Paul explicitly refers to, Adam, the, yeah. the first man. Mm-hmm. So it's more as the idea of a pattern of events yeah. that aligns to some degree yeah. With what Jesus would do, is that would that be a fair kind of like a? It isn't like at a point. Uh, for example, like the Passover is an example of 
uh, of Christ's sacrifice, right? It's a, the type is uh, the the lamb that was killed in Passover in Exodus thirteen fourteen. Mm-hmm. The antitype is Christ's death. What that was looking toward is the one who would ultimately, as John the Baptist says in chapter one, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So there's a, sure. that's the connection between the types and antitypes. Yeah. So a, a type would be a person, an event, or an institution in the <clears throat> Old Testament that finds its counterpart in the New Testament. That it, it and and it's the same. And it's greater, hmm. those two aspects of typology. I'm pretty strict when it comes to typology. I really want the apostles to point it out. Amen. Yeah. I, I don't want to try I, to yeah. guess yeah. that this is that. That scares me. <laughs> that, 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 kind of, that begins to answer a question that I had, but how do we, when we look at something like this, not wander off into some kind of allegory where, mm-hmm. like, for example, I'm borrowing from Mark's narrative in this one, but Mark mentions a pillow that Jesus was – um, laying on in the boat when the storm came along and he ca- ends up calming that storm, but he mentions the pillow. So allegorically, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of stuff that we can do. What well, that pillow that Jesus was resting <laughs> on might represent from the Old Testament. So again, yeah. I'm not trying to ma- say it means anything, but just as an example of how something could go from seeing the type and the pattern to like off the deep end into allegory. I remember a guy, one of my professors in seminary, Bible college was talking about how uh, somebody came up and said, I think God has given me a gift in interpreting scripture. It's like, okay, what, is, what does that mean? All right. So tell me. Well, I, I was reading Genesis and I saw that Abraham went from south to north and then he went from east to west. Ah, see, look, there's a picture of the cross in the ouch. Old Testament. Ow, 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 it's ouch. like, that's <laughs> uh, one of those things where you're yeah. like, you need more study, son. <laughs> yeah, that's and that's allegory. And the problem with allegory is, uh, number one, I don't think it's a biblical way of handling the text. Right. And number two, there are no controls on it. Right. It's just anything becomes anything. And when anything can mean anything, then everything means nothing. Right. Not not to go too crazy about it, but I'm I'm curious then, as we're thinking through the narrative of John, I think the Pharisees, for example, are represented as some of the most evil and wicked out of all four of the Gospels. The Pharisees are, are presented as some of the clearest, you know, just vulgar people. Like, this guy is a demon, right? They say that mm-hmm. about Jesus and just completely blasphemous things that they say. Do you feel like there might be a connection between uh, the Old Testament Israel who wandered in the wilderness uh, and the wickedness that we saw there, and the Pharisees and their wickedness when it came to the way that they represented and their relationship with God in Christ. I don't, I don't know if it'd be a type, sure, but there'd be a clear connection between God, God's enemies, and God's um, and those who would uh, twist His word. And Jesus said that the Pharisees, we had that His people had to listen to the Pharisees because they sat in the seat of Moses. Hmm. Uh, they they weren't doing a very good job representing Moses, but they were the ones in authority. And so even his peoples had to respect those who were the Pharisees. But he said, then, you know, don't imitate them hmm. because they tie up big bundles on people's shoulders and then don't uh, lift a finger to help them. In other words, loading the law on them right. with, with no gospel. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when you first shared um, this with us several months ago, I think you had said that this was something you did like a lecture series on with your church. Or it was like Sunday school lesson or something you had taught through previously. Just Sunday night preached through it. Okay. So mm-hmm. so in that pastoral dynamic, what were some points of application that surfaced as you're walking your congregation sure. um, through these observations, connecting the seven signs of John's narrative and showing how it connects back to 
what took place in Moses' life? Were there points of application that kind of rose from this regarding whether it's how we think about the Christian life mm-hmm. or some particulars as to how we live? Yeah, and that's if, – if I could back up just a little bit. Oh, please. You know, so uh, when it comes to every text of Scripture, there's one interpretation. Mm. Amen. And so uh, the interpretation is what the author meant to say. Now, that doesn't mean that an author couldn't uh, have not understood something that the divine author was was um, suggesting or was teaching in that text. But the plain meaning of that text is what the author meant to say. It's called the grammatical, historical perspective or interpretation of Scripture. What do the words mean, the grammar? You know, and how does that work? And how would the people of that day read those words? And then the historical context. Why was that author writing that and to whom and for what purpose? So there's one meaning to the text, but there's many applications to a text. So whenever I approach a, t- a passage of scripture to teach or to read or to, to preach, I ask, I have to ask three questions. First of all, what does this actually say? What is the message of this text? Secondly, what does it mean? Because I don't, I'm not living 2000 years ago. I'm living now. And so what does it mean in my context? And then the third is the application. What am I going to do about it? Yeah. When I was in seminary, I went to my seminary or college, rather, I went to my college mailbox and opened it up and I, there was a letter from a young lady and I opened it up and ah. it was a letter that was a, a love letter expressing how she'd seen me from <laughs> afar and, and was madly head over heels <laughs> in love with me. And I'm thinking, I don't know this woman. <laughs> And then in I seminary in this is a college, right? Oh, yeah, okay. I was yeah. pretty, pretty, uh, strongly dating my wife in seminary, but this was in college. <laughs> and, and, and so I turned the envelope over and realized it wasn't addressed to me. <laughs> oh, there was oh. a different Brian J whose Oops. box was right next to mine. So I, Oops. I quickly taped it up and put it back in, hoping that, you know, nobody would know that I had actually read somebody else's <laughs> mail. <laughs> and when it comes to scripture, we have to admit we're reading somebody else's mail. Yeah. You know, if we read Philemon, for example, and Paul says to Philemon, get a room ready for me because I'm coming to visit you. You all have a room for Paul in your home, right? Absolutely. He wrote that to you. Yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. In the, uh, we got guest room all, all set, all right set for cure, Paul cure, just in case he shows up. Right, right next to the spot where Elijah will be in my uh, Passover <laughs> feast. Right? Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So we, we need to read it as we're reading somebody else's mail, but yeah. we're allowed to. We're encouraged to. <laughs> But then we have to update it for our particular context. What does this inherent and infallible message mean in our context in our day? And then the application. So you asked about applications. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the various ways that these miracles of Jesus demonstrate not only that he is the new Moses, but that he is the Savior. So, for example, turning the water into wine. Now, I, I drink wine once a month in church. It's about a half an ounce, so I'm, I'm really a, mainly a teetotaler. But wine meant was time for times of great celebration and joy. And wine is almost always, except in Proverbs where it's, you know, kind of discouraged getting drunk, but wine is almost always talked about uh, describing joy and life mm-hmm. and vitality. And that's what Jesus brings. And if our experience of following Jesus is more like water into blood, maybe we need to step back and examine mm-hmm. our walk with Christ. Yeah. Are we really 
delighting in him, mm-hmm. finding mm-hmm. our great joy in him Amen. because Amen. we should be. Yeah. Sometimes I think what we do, we, we overemphasize the practical. Now, there needs to be practical, uh, but, you know, how does this make me a better husband, better father, or a better wife, or better mother, or a better employer or employee? But in reality, if it makes you a better Christian, you're going to be better in all these things. Mm-hmm. And when we exalt Christ, uh, any way we can get our church as pastors to exalt Christ and lift him high in worship, we're helping them to become better at all of these things. Yeah, I want to ask you, uh, pastors and deacon. If you, <laughs> two pastors and a deacon. Two yeah. pastors and a deacon, right? If you have ever uh, taught through or preached through the book of Ephesians. No. Uh, incidentally, I did have my deacons teach through it in Sunday school recently. So, okay. Um, now, I haven't gotten to that point yet. So Ephesians follows that wonderful pattern that we find in Romans as well mm-hmm. of doctrine and application. Right. So you're preaching through these great, glorious truths in the first three chapters of Ephesians. What's your application? Well, what happens in chapters four, five, and six, right? <laughs> right. So in in your sermons, in your you know dozen sermons that you have on Ephesians mm-hmm. one through three, is there no application? How do you do that? Yeah. Or do you have to wait till the end for all the application? And maybe we forget that one of the most primary applications when it comes to scripture is worship. Yeah. Amen. We must worship God because God is glorious. And worship really is the fire that, uh, that fuels our obedience. So without worship, our obedience becomes that drudgery, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's the worship aspect of the glory of God that motivates us and moves us forward. Yeah. Could, could I just share a little, um, aphorism in how the mind and the affections and the will are connected. You know, maybe you've heard that there's the imperative and then the indicative in mm-hmm. scripture. Yeah. So because or it starts with the indicative, because God is this and has done this, therefore we must do that. That's right. Again, that's Romans one through 11 and then 12 through mm-hmm. 16, right? Mm-hmm. I've heard that too, the indicative and the imperative, but I think there's something missing in between. And that is the ignition. So mm-hmm. the indicative of who God is and what he does lights us on fire. Yeah. And then the imperative is not, well, I guess I have to do this because it's true. It's like, right. I can't wait to do this. Yeah. Right. So here's what I teach my congregation. God's truth engages the mind, which inflames the affections, which empowers the will for love and service. Mm-hmm. So there's the kind of the whole package. Yeah. And yep. the application... Doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, Brian's three tips for how to have a, you know, a better lawn or, a, you know, a, a grandkids <laughs> who behave themselves or right. anything like that. The application is God is really glorious and mm-hmm. our hearts need to sing because of how glorious God is. Amen. Yeah. I heard Joel Beakey put those three categories into um, a literary device using H's. Of it comes into the word comes into our head, then into our hearts. And out through our hands. Oh, that's great. Because God, God calls us to respond with the whole person. Yeah. Right. And wow. I was even just thinking the other day about a pastor that I had the privilege of sitting underneath um, back in Mississippi. First exposure I ever had to expository preaching, even before he got there, just God's spirit was already um, stirring up my heart in worship or was already identifying like, okay, here's some things in light of that story in Acts. Because he was, he, was, he was preaching through Acts. Mm-hmm. 
I, it was like it was, the Holy Spirit was already like speaking application, if you will, into mm-hmm. my heart. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. this like heartfelt desire to move in a particular direction. And uh, yeah, I think that was in a way kind of experiencing what you're describing, where the Word of God should already be engaging before mm-hmm. the pastor even says, okay, now let's consider these two things or these three things as to how we as to how we live. I uh, appreciate that you're here again. I always like listening to you. I uh, look forward to the summer lectures. I'll be at them. Um, yeah, I'll be checking those out. I don't, don't know if I'll make it to all of them, but that's something I will be. Have you, would you ever consider doing more than three or why three? Uh, because I have to take a vacation sometime. Right? So, <laughs> Very good. So I've, yeah. I've done up, upwards to five or six. Oh, yeah. And sure. the rest of my family get a little upset about that. So yeah. I try to limit things. Yeah. I do, do put them all on the website. So uh, the audio and then the PowerPoint slides go on the, on the website as well. Yeah. Okay. So listeners, check that out. Uh, what's the website? HospersPCA.org. Okay. If you uh, listeners check that out and uh, see if you can get to listening to that sometime this summer. So there's the July 11th is one of them. June 27th is another. And there's one more. Starts in June 20th. Starts on June 20th. So check those things out. Thank you for joining us again. You guys honor me by uh, inviting me back. That's <laughs> yeah. uh, wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm glad you guys are doing this as well to get the word out every way which we can. Yeah. yeah. Yep. We enjoy it. it is a, it's a privilege and honor. A lot of fun. And uh, glad to glad you came back and, and joined us again. Yeah. Would you mind praying uh, as we close? I would love to. Thank you. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your very best gift of your son. And we thank you that you have revealed him in your word uh, so that we would anticipate him. And then he would break upon us with great power and great amazement and astonishment. And then your apostles appointed by the Son of God, unpacking all that he has done and all that he calls us to do. Lord, we pray even now for a fresh and new and greater appreciation for your Son, who is our Savior, our prophet, priest, and king, who is our pioneer and the author of our faith. We pray in his name. 